0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to read tonight from Revelation chapter 1 and verses 4 through 7. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now these are the verses that we read the last time we spoke from Revelation But we only focused on two portions of these verses, and so that's why we're going back to it tonight. Our purpose last time was to emphasize the two primary doctrinal truths contained in these verses, which must be the foundation for however you interpret the rest of the book of Revelation. And one of those is at the end of verse 5, where he says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is who John is recognizing. This is who he's making reference to. This is who is to be glorified. And this is one of those verses, like one preacher said, that you can't misunderstand it without assistance. It says, he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's about as simple as you can make it. So when you get to the highly symbolic language later on in this book, keep that verse in mind. Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. It's not conditional upon you meeting any conditions or requirements. It's not based on how you figure out where you fit in the book of Revelation as far as a timeline is concerned. But remember that, that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then the other thing we emphasized was the first part of verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. When the Lord returns, it's not going to be a secret. It's not something that only a small portion of his people are going to be aware of. It says, he cometh with clouds. And if you'll do a word study on that word clouds in the New Testament, and look at all those verses that use the word clouds in conjunction with the Lord's second coming, you'll see that it's an event that's known worldwide. Every eye shall see Him. So as you read the book of Revelation and see how that you could make a variety of interpretations, don't let your interpretations violate these two doctrinal truths that are literally taught all through the New Testament. Jesus saved us. He redeemed us. And redemption is not complete until you get what you paid for. And he's coming back to get what he paid for. So let's now begin in verse 4 and look at the other parts of these verses but i just wanted to wanted to emphasize those two important points John to the seven churches which are in Asia now this would be what we know today as uh, modern day turkey but this is the particular region under consideration John to the seven churches which are in asia now there were seven literal churches that he will address in the next couple of chapters but the word seven is also significant in that it ordinarily means that which is complete it's the number of completion and so i believe we can at least gain from that that these are messages that can apply to the Lord's churches throughout time. I believe these are uh, some complete messages that are not only uh, relevant then, but they're relevant now, and we can gain uh, a wide understanding of how the Lord works with His churches. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now notice this. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which it was and which is to come. Now I want you to notice there, he says, Grace be unto you and peace. That expression, and sometimes it may incorporate the word mercy, but that general exp- expression, grace and peace, is used in the introduction of all of the apostle paul's epistles now the book of hebrews doesn't in and of itself state who the author is and we don't find the expression there and it's not my purpose to debate who wrote the book of hebrews but in all of those epistles that identify that paul is the arthur you'll find them introduced in this way grace and peace, or grace, mercy, and peace. Both of Peter's epistles begin with a, uh, a phrase similar to this, and here we have it in the last book of the Bible. Now, you know, when we're talking to each other, we'll often use introductory phrases, and they really don't have meaning to them. It's just a routine practice, like when you ask someone, well, hey, how are you doing? We really don't mean a lot by it. It's just a way to start the conversation. There are some people you don't want to ask that because they'll spend a lot of time telling you how they're doing, and it's usually not how good they're doing. One of the things that I began practicing as a preacher when, uh, when I was pastoring churches, when I would call members, I wouldn't ask them how they're doing. I would ask them what they're doing. And you'll get real answers usually. You know, if you call people and ask them how they're doing, they'll usually say fine, regardless of the situation. But the point I'm trying to get across to you as the inspired word of God is never just routine without any meaning. And so while you might receive a letter from someone that says, I hope all is well with your family. And you may just read over that part of it, because that's really not what their intentions are in writing you. They usually have something more specific. Yet, this is God's inspired word, and I don't want us to overlook this as just an introductory greeting. Furthermore, we as primitive Baptists may tend to overlook it more than others, Because we ordinarily think of grace as it relates to our salvation, and it certainly does. We believe salvation is by grace, period. But that's not the only way the word grace is used in the Bible. You know, when, when the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, when the Bible talks about laying hold on eternal life, There are many ways the Bible will make reference to God's grace or God's spirit in how that we are under its influence in our lives. And that influence may vary based on how we're behaving ourselves. You know, if you're living in willful sin, you're not going to feel the spirit in a good way. You might feel it in a bad way. So our behavior can affect the manifest presence of the Spirit in our life. So the idea here is the writer expressing his will that you would experience the influence of the Spirit of God. Grace be unto you, and notice what the consequence is. Grace be
1: unto you and peace. Now, since this is used, as I've already referenced, at
0: least 16 times in the New Testament, I want us to really
1: remember this. And there's a hymn that came to my mind that
0: explains or rather expounds on what this expression means. It's a hymn most of us are familiar with, number 385. Oh, for a breeze of heavenly love. Now this hymn verbalizes that idea. Grace be unto you in peace. But it's coming from the perspective of the person who desires to receive grace and peace. Notice this hymn. And by the way, the man that wrote this hymn was the, uh, we might say, the second man that was responsible for publishing the the Sacred Harp hymnal. And this man, uh, E.J. King, died at age 23. He was the mayor of, I believe it was Hamilton, Georgia, some small town in Georgia. He was the county clerk. And so evidently, though he died when he was 23, he was very involved. But notice what he says. Oh, for a breeze of heavenly love to waft my soul away to that celestial world above where pleasures ne'er decay. Eternal Spirit, deign to be my pilot here below to steer through life's tempestuous seas where stormy winds do blow. I need the influence of thy grace to speed me on my way lest I should lord in my race or turn my feet astray. Are not thy mercy sovereign still, and thou a faithful God? Wilt thou not grant me warmer zeal to run the heavenly road? From rocks of pride on either side, or on either hand, from quicksands of despair, O oh, guide me safe on Canaan's land through every latent snare. Anchor me in that port above on that celestial shore Where dashing billows never move Where tempests never roar Now he's not speaking particularly about going to heaven He's speaking about his desire for heaven's influence On his life here And that's the thing I long for the most Isn't that true with you? I'm uh, I'm not happy without the influence of the Spirit in my life. Oh, for a breeze of heavenly love. That's the idea here. He says, grace unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now, this is not the only place that that terminology is used where he refers to God as existing now, existing in the past, and existing in the future. As a matter of fact, it's used just a little later in this chapter. And so as you think about this book and who it was written to, it was written to churches that were going through persecution, and surely that's one of the things that needs to be emphasized, that God is eternal. And notice several scriptures I want to turn to, although this is primarily referring in this context to God the Father, we can certainly apply it to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. One of my favorite verses about God being eternal is in Psalms uh, 90 and verse 10. And it's uh, verse 2, I believe. And it's interesting that this is a psalm that addresses the brevity of our life. Look at Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow? You may live beyond 70 or 80, but the essence of your strength will eventually become labor and sorrow. He's not speaking here necessarily of emotional sorrow, but just the difficulty and the discouragement that you may face just physically getting around. But in contrast, look in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Did you notice it uses the present tense regardless of where you are in eternity past or eternity future? You go back to the Garden Garden of Eden and in eternity past, or if you go into the future, past the end of this world, regardless of where you are or regardless of what point of that timeline from which you consider God, that he's present. Thou art God. The same is said of Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 13
1: and uh, verse 8. Jesus Christ, The same. Yesterday. And today.
0: And forever. That's something we ought to long for. In our country today. Jesus Christ. The same. There's so much change in our world.
1: There's so much of this so-called. Relative. Morals. There's people that will say, well, this may not be your truth, but this is
0: my truth. That's a self-contradiction, isn't it? This says Jesus is the same. Yesterday and today and forever. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not only is God described this way and Jesus described this way. But notice here, he's speaking of our salvation, Hebrews 9, 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now I want to make just a side note there. Those of you that understand grace have probably had this thought. When I'm talking to people that don't understand this concept, I always think, and sometimes I'll say this, that those Israelites and those Old Testament priests never made sacrifices or offerings to Israel. They made them to God. And the issue was, does God accept it? Well, notice here it says, Uh, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, speaking of Jesus, he entered in once into the holy place. You know, those priests entered there once yearly, Not with their own, with blood for the sacrifice. Uh, They made that sacrifice yearly there in the temple, but here it's using that in a symbolic way, referring to what Jesus did on the cross by His own blood. He entered once into the holy place, having obtained, past tense, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus made His offering through the eternal, capital S, Spirit. God's eternal. Jesus is eternal. The Spirit's eternal. They're all the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's one of the things that we need to know and realize when we're going through hardship, when we're being threatened by the authorities or when we're being persecuted. That's what the Lord inspired John to express to these seven churches. He says, I'm writing to you from him which is and which was and which is to come. I'm writing you in the authority and in the name of the eternal God. If things are going bad in your life, we're prone to think This is the only time there's ever been. You know, we we focus on what I'm going through now. And he wanted them to know that there's something far beyond their present temporal
1: sufferings. And then he says, And from the
0: seven spirits... Which are before his throne. Now that's a capital S. And 1 John 5 7, which is deleted from all other modern English translations except the King James, and if you want to look into that, it may be included in one of them, but I don't think it's included in any of the modern English translations. 1 John 5, 7 says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So we know the Godhead is not made up of God the Father, God God the uh, Son, and God the three spirits. That's not the Trinity. Remembering that the book of Revelation is symbolic, You know, even when he begins to address the churches, which we would think, well, this is not the difficult spiritual, uh, uh, symbolic part. This is just him writing to the churches. Well, even then, he refers to these churches uh, and, and, and he refers to the angels as the seven stars and he refers to the churches as the seven candlesticks. So he's already incorporating language to represent things. I believe when he refers to the seven spirits here, There are two things you can glean from this. There are seven churches. And seven is the number of completion. I don't believe he's saying that, oh, everything else in the Bible that says there are three that bear record in heaven, that that's all wrong. That actually there are seven spirits that make up the third person of the Godhead. That's not what he's saying. He's saying as in the same way, notice the emphasis, in the same way that God is eternal, Jesus is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal, in the same way the Spirit, which is God's ministry to the church in this world, is sufficient and complete for all seven churches, and He can provide to each church everything they need. And again, this is a time when they needed to understand that. We need to understand that today. The Spirit's not limited.
1: Seven spirits which are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful
0: witness. In other words, whatever Jesus says is true. When you go read in John chapter 6, That's a long chapter. I believe there's around 70 verses. But in John chapter 6, that's where Jesus says things like this. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. There's a lot of statements where Jesus emphasizes that I am witnessing God. I'm I'm a witness for God. I and my Father are one. That's what Jesus is. His testimony is totally reliable, accurate, and trustworthy. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and I want to spend a little time on this one. You know, I figure if I have trouble understanding things, and, you know, I I wasn't that smart in school, so if I have trouble understanding things, I'm just going to assume maybe you have some trouble with it. Maybe you already get it. But I always had problems with this expression here. Notice he says, uh, from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. What does that mean? There are several places
1: we can illustrate this. Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. Sometimes you'll see the word firstborn. Firstborn. One place he's referred
0: to as the first fruits. But look first at Colossians chapter 1, Colossians
1: chapter 1 and verse 14. Colossians
0: 1 and 14, referring to Jesus, and here we go again, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us over and over that you're saved by the blood of Christ and you're going to heaven. So if you get afraid about something you read in Revelation, that's not the purpose of the book, by the way. But if you do get afraid about something you read there, you can say, well, this this is symbolic language I don't understand, but there's all kind of verses I do understand that teach me I'm going to heaven because of Jesus, period. But notice here, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Notice what He says there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now let's read a couple of others and then we'll try to give some explanation on this. Here's one that's real easy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the longest discussion of the resurrection in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15. It makes no reference, as far as I can remember, to the Resurrection of the unjust, that doesn't mean there's not a resurrection of the unjust. That just means Paul's not concerned about the resurrection of the unjust. You know, if if you're interested in the resurrection of the unjust, we need to believe that truth. Paul said in Acts 24, 15, We believe that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. But as children of God, we're not very interested in the resurrection of the unjust. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, notice in verse 20, he's speaking of the resurrection. He says, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the
1: firstfruits of them that slept. He is the prominent he is the at
0: the forefront he's the most important Amen. without him there would be no more fruits in the sense of this verse Paul discusses that in detail you go back and read the first portion of First Corinthians 15, and he goes, he makes great emphasis to the fact that if Christ be not raised, we're yet in our sins. Our preaching's vain, and your faith is vain, and even those of your relatives, putting this in my words, even those of your relatives that have died are perished. They're ruined. They're eternally separated if there be no resurrection of Christ, but he's the firstfruits of them that slept. Notice also here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, what he says in verses uh, 22 and 23 For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then no one would be raised from the dead at His coming. There would be no benefit to be had at His coming if He had not been raised from the dead. And then look at one more. Well, let's just quote this one and then we'll look at one more. You know Romans 8, 29. For whom He did foreknow, them He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, He's at the forefront. He's the most important. There would be no benefit to His children if it wasn't for Him. He's the firstborn he, uh, among many brethren. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Listen to this. I really like these verses. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. This is not the local church here. Usually the word church in the Bible is referring to the local church, but here's one of those few places that it's not, because this is the church of the firstborn, the general assembly, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And what do we come to here in this church? He says, in this church we're come to the spirits of just men made perfect. What's in heaven prior to the resurrection with regard to those that have already passed from this life we're come to the spirits of just men made perfect. I realize that there's a sense in which, when we're, in which we're not complete until we're body, soul, and spirit. But the idea here is even before the bodily resurrection, when you die and pass to heaven, sin's not bothering you anymore. The spirits of just men made perfect. Think of all the people that we have lost that you know during the pandemic, those that have passed away uh, just from natural causes, all the, the deaths that we know about in this church. You know what they are now? They're not sleeping in the grave. They're the spirits in heaven. They're the spirits of just men made perfect you know who's one of those just men are lot <laughs> doesn't that encourage you that lot as, as ungodly as he uh, lived the bible says that he was a just man it doesn't matter what my opinion is or whether i say i don't see how that could be true if the lord says he is he is. He was a just man and living down there in Sodom and Gomorrah, it vexed his righteous soul daily. Your soul is not vexed unless you're a child of God. The wicked love this world, love wallowing in the sin of this world, but it vexed uh, Lot's soul day by day until it was just fully uh, overwhelmed and worn down as far as his sen- sen- sensitivity to sin was concerned but now he's one of those just
1: men made perfect that gives me hope that maybe I'll be there so you see when John writes in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 4 or rather verse
0: 5, he says, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, he's speaking of the one who is of foremost
1: significance with regard to the resurrection. And the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him
0: that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now what does it mean to say that we have been made kings and priests? Well, look at Revelation chapter 20 when you think about that word uh, kings. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath uh, part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, we're not going to get into this chapter yet, but the point I want you to see from this is it refers to God's people with regard to that thousand years. It refers to them as reigning. He says, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him. See, Jesus is our King. And He says there's a sense in which we Reign with him. And certainly that's a good way to address this persecuted church, isn't it? That it doesn't seem like you're reigning here on earth, does it? But he says you're reigning with Christ. And again, we're not going to talk about that thousand years yet, but look also at um, 1 Peter chapter 2. This, this really describes the practical application of this idea that we are kings and priests unto
1: God. Now this is speaking of life in the church. He says, Ye also as
0: lively stones are built up, a spiritual house, and holy priesthood, To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You see, the the hundreds and hundreds of years of that Old Testament worship, where they were always making sacrifices, and the priest went into the holiest of holies once a year to make a sacrifice, were all Training the minds of God's people that the spotless Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. But now, as Peter is riding this side of the cross, that's not part of our worship. But there's a spiritual parallel to it. We're not offering animal sacrifices, but notice what he says. We're like lively stones... We're built up like a spiritual house. We're like a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. When you sing, when you pray, when you feel the Spirit in the preaching and you rejoice in the Lord and thank the Lord for the truth, you're offering up as a priest, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices
1: to God. Men, women, and children. Are priests in that sense. And then back to Revelation 1, verse
0: 6 He's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to him, that is to Jesus, to the Father as well. You can apply this however you want it. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, again, I keep referring back to the condition to the churches to whom he was writing, not the condition of how they were conducting Mm -hmm. themselves, but the condition in terms of what they were experiencing. And there's so much wording here which focuses their minds on what they need to think about. Notice this, as you're going through the battles and discouragements of life, he says to him,
1: be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every
0: eye shall see him, And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of
1: him, even so. Amen. Now when he talks about all kindreds of the
0: earth shall wail, he's not referring to God's people there. Now God has a people out of every kindred tongue people, and nation, and he, since he has a people out of uh, every kindred and every nation, that means there's some in every kindred and nation that are not his. Now personally, I believe God's people are the extreme majority. That's what I believe. But I believe there's a place of eternal separation and it will be populated. And there are some people that will wail when the Lord comes back. And notice how this is described in Revelation chapter 6. Those that that mock God now, those that uh, insult God, those that offend you by what they say about God, here's what they're going to say. When the Lord comes back, Revelation six sixteen, he says, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, notice that, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? See, God's glorified even by the wicked because they recognize who He is. You remember that wild gathering. You remember what those demons, those devils said to Jesus when they saw Him? They said, Are you come to torment us before the time? We know you're coming. I heard a man say one time that the devil knows more truth than some preachers. He believed in the second coming of Christ. He believed there were people that were not children of God. And he, the devil, his angels, his I think they're there called devils, uh, say to him, when they see the Lord, what's, what's on their mind? What do they connect with God? They see God here on earth and they say, is it already time for you to come torment us? We thought that was way off. You know, that's the way the wicked think. That's right. They put far off the day of judgment. And, you know, you, whenever you see people, I think of this a lot on the, in national politics. When you see senators or representatives that are in their 80s, late 80s, some of them, and they're still promoting such ungodly policies, and that's all there is to their life, there are people that think that way that this is all there is and all that matters but like
1: these devils you know they said are you come already they didn't want to face that
0: we do not rejoice in the punishment of the wicked you know sometimes I try to think about that
1: punishment that never ever ever ends when you think it you know think
0: about how much time has passed there's
1: still just as much ahead when you realize the wrath of God you can feel
0: sorry for the most evil reprobate wicked man or woman there ever has been First of all, because by nature we deserve to be there. But we rejoice in the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world.
1: We thank you for
0: listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.